Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Times feature as well, but I'm, I'm excited to learn more about Mary and your new book. So let me just introduce you quickly. Melita Thomas is the co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a repository of information about the Tudors and Stuarts in the period from 1485 to 1625 at tudortimes.co.uk. Melita has loved history ever since being mesmerized by the BBC productions of The Six Wives of Henry VIII and Elizabeth R. when she was a little girl. And after that, she read everything she could get her hands on about this most fascinating of dynasties. She was captivated by the story of Lady Margaret galloping to Framingham to set up her standard and fight for her rights. And she began her first book about the queen when she was nine. The manuscript is probably still in the attic. Well, I hope you can find it at some point. Um, so welcome. Thank you for being here. And what can you, what can you tell us about Mary and about your book? Right. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you, Heather, and England Cast for inviting me to take part in this inaugural Tudor Summit. And today I'll be discussing my new book, The King's Pearl, which is about the youth of England's first Queen Regnant Mary and her relationship with her father, Henry VIII. As you mentioned, I've been fascinated by the story of Mary since I was a little girl, first seeing her on the BBC TV series Elizabeth R., and then through the wonderful trilogy of novels by Hilda Lewis, which I don't know if you've read, uh, but she was a great writer. And I begged my mother to buy these books for me about Mary. And my mother was somewhat reluctant since I was nine years old. And obviously the books had difficult themes, but she was talked into it. And I entered the Tudor world even more closely than through the television screen. And I continued to be intrigued by the story of how Mary, even though she was only 17, stood up to Henry VIII, Cromwell, Anne Boleyn, and the whole might of the English government for three years before eventually being bullied into submission. And that, together with her, her courage in claiming the throne in 1553, suggested to me that when the history books said that she was stupid and timid and politically naive and indecisive, that actually that might not really be the whole story. During the last 15 years, in fact, there's been a major reappraisal of Mary's reign by historians and her successes as well as her failures have been given a fair hearing. But whilst the cliche of Bloody Mary is, is perhaps receding, at least amongst academics, there is a danger of it being replaced with a, a very disempowering cliche of Mary as, as tragic Mary. The idea that her youth, she was so bullied and humiliated and browbeaten and she was banished from the court, and estranged from her father and only reconciled with him through the good offices of Catherine Parr. But you know, so it was a wonder that she functioned at all as a, as a, a woman or as a queen. Um, and I initially sort of bought into this idea as, as Mary as having been very, um, very damaged by her youth and, and very cowed by it. 
but actually a chance line in a novel set me off on quite a new direction. Um, and I don't know how many of you have read uh, C.J. Sansom's Chardlake novels. They are absolutely brilliant. I uh, love him. Really well written. Sure. Yeah, you, you, you're a lover of them too, Heather. <laughs> I, I find them very readable, perhaps what should we say, a little more readable than um, more famous books about the period. Uh, but as, as well as being readable, they're meticulously researched. So when Sansom mentions, uh, so Chardlake, he's walking along the street, and he mentions passing the grand apartment building that Henry is having built for Mary at Whitehall. And I had never heard of this, so I immediately looked into it and discovered that, of course, uh, Sanson was, was quite correct. Henry commissioned a two-story block of apartments at the Royal Palace of Whitehall on the riverfront with a beautiful gallery and an oriel window and, you know, all the mod cons for Mary. Now, these works were finished in the spring of 1543, and, and we know that because there's a record in Mary's accounts of her going along to the, what, what nowadays we call the topping out ceremony and uh, paying for a tip for all the, all the builders. Uh, so that was finished in spring 1543. So, you know, there were major works. They couldn't have been uh, planned before the summer of 1542. And that timing completely negates the idea that uh, Mary was only restored to Henry's favour through the good offices of Catherine Parr because in mid-1542 Catherine was still married to her second husband and not even on Henry's radar. So this gave a whole different slant to their relationship and I wanted to investigate further and that's that became the theme of the King's Pearl. So when I started researching well what did I find out? Well it soon became obvious that I had to think of Mary and Henry's relationship as having two different dimensions. They had a personal one, a father and daughter, and a political one, which was between Henry and a girl who was first a, a bargaining tool for foreign diplomacy, then his probable heir for 17 years, then his political enemy, and finally a woman whom he used once again to try to secure foreign alliances, but whom he feared would pose a threat to his son. So this interplay of personal and political uh, elements they sometimes conflicted and you can see the relationship twisting and turning as the different elements came to the fore so henry perhaps surprisingly was, was a very affectionate father to all of his children but he knew mary best and he spent most time with her or more time with her than he did with his other children both in her childhood and later uh, she was the only child he had a, an adult relationship with uh, she was 31 when he died whereas Elizabeth and Edward were 13 and 9, respectively, and his illegitimate son had died at 17. Now, when she was very small, Henry, like many a proud father, he would parade her about in his arms and proclaim that she never cried. Uh, presumably, whenever she showed a two-year-old temper tantrum, she was whisked away out of the king's sight. When, he was old, when she was older, Henry would encourage ambassadors to speak to her in Latin, in French, and in Italian to show off her very considerable intellectual attainments. Mary had a very high-class education by some of the leading humanists of the time. He was also very proud of her musical ability, uh, which she presumably inherited from him. Mary and Henry were both uh, very talented instrument players. She played the lute and various um, keyboard instruments and Henry boasted when she was about 12 that she played the spinach better than he did and she was also like Henry a, a very accomplished dancer. 
So her job as a, as a king's daughter, her political job was to make a brilliant match to a foreign prince and to extend Henry's influence abroad. And Mary herself had, as well as being Henry's daughter, the added cachet of being the maternal first cousin of the Emperor Charles V, who was her mother's nephew. And she was also an, a, a more valuable prize than most king's daughters because, although Henry didn't like to admit it, uh, she was his heir. I mean, there were questions about how desirable it was for a woman to inherit, but th there was no legal reason why, why Mary couldn't be Queen of England. So throughout the period from her birth to 15, six, in 1516 to 1527, Mary was the subject of intense marital negotiations. Her first betrothal was in 1518 to the Dauphin of France, which was very prestigious as Queens of France, ranked above every woman in Europe apart from the Empress. As part of the treaty, Henry was obliged to acknowledge that if he had, she had no brothers, then Mary would be his heir, uh, but he continued to anticipate the birth of the son. And that betrothal fell away in 1522 as an even more glorious match appeared on the scene at the prospect of Mary actually marrying her cousin, the Emperor. And so Henry could envisage a future in which his grandson would be Holy Roman Emperor. Again, he had to acknowledge that Mary might be his heir, but it was not until 1524 that he really seems to have accepted that this was, was probably going to happen. By then, it was apparent that uh, Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon, would have no more children. And initially, Henry seems to have been resigned to the fact, especially with the, the thought of Mary as empress and a grandson as emperor as well as king of England. But then Charles let him down. He demanded that Mary be sent to Spain immediately, even though she was only nine and not of marriageable age, which, which was 12 in those days. And Henry was adamant that she could not leave England so young. Um, this was, again, a mixture of the personal and the, and the political. Personally, he was very averse to letting Mary uh, uh, leave the country so young, and she, he, he did not want to, her to marry at the age of 12, which was the minimum age acceptable. Uh, his grandmother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, uh, was widely believed to have been physically very damaged by early childbirth, and Henry, Henry did not want that to happen to his daughter. Uh, politically, of course, he couldn't let Mary go to Spain unless she was to be married immediately in case the marriage never took place and Mary, Mary was a hostage. So the arguments went backwards and forwards. Charles insisted, Mary, um, Henry resisted, and eventually Charles jilted Mary for her another cousin, Isabella of Portugal. Henry had no choice but to swallow the humiliation. But that, together with Catherine now having reached the end of her childbearing, soured his, his relationship with Mary's mother, which, which had previously been good, but it, it began to deteriorate. So Henry now had two possible heirs. He had Mary, who was his legitimate daughter, and his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. He, he couldn't make up his mind what, what the best route was. So he leant towards Mary as his legitimate child, and although she was not formally invested with the title of Princess of Wales, in mid-1525, she was given the position of head of the Council for Wales and the Marches and was referred to in letters and in official documents as Princess of Wales. Now, she is the only woman so far who has ever been referred to by this title in her own right. And it implied the status of heir, but it was still informal. Henry, not wishing to entirely commit himself, also promoted Fitzroy to be Duke of Richmond and Somerset and head of the Council of the North. 
So Mary went off to the Marches of Wales, uh, lived uh, there very comfortably, and was treated with all the respect and deference that the heir to the throne might expect. And although she was still only a child between the ages of nine and 11, 12, her position clearly became part of her sense of identity. And she believed herself and thought of herself and considered herself to be the king's daughter, the princess of Wales and heir to the crown. Uh, I mean, during the time she, she saw her parents, they visited or she visited the southeast of England. And on one occasion, when Henry's uh, friend, Charles Duke of Suffolk, made a mess of the arrangements, Henry was really very angry with him because he thought he wouldn't see his daughter, which suggests you know, genuine parental affection that, that he was missing her. So it, whilst Mary was in Wales or in the marches, uh, she was also continued to be put forward as a wife for um, different foreign princes, including the King of France or his second son. Uh, but Henry was actually beginning to think of another potential solution to his problem. Despite his affection for Mary, he, he wanted a male heir. There were plenty of people alive who remembered the Wars of the Roses, and there were several viable male candidates for the throne. So to protect the Tudor heritage, uh, Henry wanted a son. And at some point around 1526, he became convinced, and there's no reason not to, to believe that he sincerely believed that this, he became convinced that his marriage to Catherine was invalid. And at the same time, he also fell in love with Anne Boleyn, who was the daughter of one of his uh, courtiers and the sister of a former mistress. Now, to begin with, in Henry's mind, the two things were, were separate, but they did become conflated. And Henry's desire to replace Catherine with a potentially more fertile wife to give him a male heir became conflated with his, his desire for Anne. But for Mary, from early 1527, when the annulment proceedings began, right up until the middle of 1533, uh, Mary's official position didn't change. She was still referred to as Princess of Wales, and she was still the object of Henry's affection, uh, although as time passed, uh, he saw less of her. Anne, uh, fearful that his fatherly affection for Mary would prevent him going the whole hog and, and actually um, uh, setting her aside, uh, discouraged Henry from seeing her. But it was not until 1533 in the summer of that year when Anne, who was now, had now been crowned queen and was pregnant, that Mary, Mary's status began to change. Uh, first of all, there was an order to send her jewels back to the king. And then after the birth of Elizabeth, she was commanded to renounce her title of princess and accept that she was illegitimate and uh, that she was to be nothing but an attendant to her half-sister. Now, to Henry's utter astonishment, Mary, who had been brought up to think obedience to the king and to her father was her duty after, after her duty to God, absolutely refused to obey him. She was aged only 17. She was separated from her mother, her governess, the Countess of Salisbury, forced literally physically sometimes to take a subordinate place to Elizabeth, but she maintained her legitimacy and her right to be acknowledged as Henry's heir. For three years, she dug her heels in, and despite threats and bullying, uh, even on one occasion it being suggested that she should be beaten until her head was as soft as a baked apple, she refused to comply. Henry himself veered between explosive rage at, at his daughter's defiance. Apart from anything else, if a king couldn't control his daughter, it didn't really speak well of his uh, ability to maintain authority, but also sorrow at their estrangement. 
he reacted angrily to other people criticizing her and he, he was close to tears when he talked to her and still actually sent her presents of money and, and uh, clothes when she asked for them. And it appears from my research that actually she was much closer to the court during this period than is often thought. Although she didn't see Henry, she was still communicating with members of the court and she certainly kept up regular contact behind Henry's back with the emperor's ambassador, Eustace Shapwees. It, it's not clear how she communicated with him, but she was obviously, um, she obviously had friends who, who would help her. In 1536, uh, Mary's mother died, and although they'd been separated for five years, Mary was, was devastated, as, as might be expected, but she also thought that even more pressure would be brought uh, on her to accept uh, not only Henry's marriage to Anne, but also by now the removal of papal supremacy from the English church, which um, Parliament had given to Henry. But there was soon to be a new twist in the story. In May of the same year, Anne was arrested and executed for treason, her, her alleged crimes being uh, adultery and incest and plotting the king's death. And within days of, Mary's, of Anne's death, uh, Mary was writing to Henry's minister Cromwell, begging to be allowed to write to Henry himself. Uh, just before Anne's death, Mary had received a message from a couple of Henry's gentlemen of the chamber telling her that her fortunes would soon change. So we wonder how much Mary may have known of what was being plotted against Anne or how much rumour and gossip was around. But she certainly acted very quickly, which suggests that she put her misfortune entirely down to Anne, which was... Um, you know, perhaps not surprising, but not entirely true. Not true at all, in fact, because it was, it was Henry's decision. And he had now hardened his attitude. Mary must comply with the law or she would face the consequences. Now, whether he would have had her tried and executed, we, could, we can never know that. But he took sufficient steps for Mary and her confidant, Chapuis, to believe that he would go that far. So after prevaricating for another month, in June of 1536, she capitulated, accepted the invalidity of her parents' marriage, that she was not legitimate and not the heir to the throne. Within days, Henry, absolutely delighted, and his new wife, Jane Seymour, met Mary privately at Hackney. And he gave her gifts, established a new household for her within weeks, not as grand as the household she'd had as Princess of Wales, of course, but um, larger than the one that Elizabeth had. And towards the end of the year, she took up residence at court with Henry and Jane. And she and Jane were on very good terms, and Mary was treated as second in rank only to Jane. On Jane's death, Mary was, was chief mourner at the funeral, and for the rest of Henry's reign, she maintained a close relationship with, with her half-brother, who, who Jane had died giving birth to. Mary couldn't live at court as a single woman, uh, so whilst there was no queen in situ, she would she lived close to the court and Henry would visit her, but she couldn't actually be part of a, of a male dominated environment. Then when he married Anna Cleves, she, uh, she rejoined the court and seems to have been on, on good terms with Anna Cleves. She, was, she had a less uh, comfortable relationship with Henry's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, who thought Mary did not treat her with sufficient respect. It was probably hard for Mary to conceal her dismay at Henry's marriage to a girl who was uh, at least five years younger than herself and who was of good English birth, was not of the rank of her own mother or, or even that of Anna Cleves. However, the two got along better as time passed 
and Mary accompanied the court on the Great Northern Progress of 1541. And Catherine became fond enough of her to give her a gold commander, which is rather a nice present, which I had one. So following the sudden and obviously shocking arrest and execution of Catherine, Mary again lived separately from the court, um, but as noted above, he, Henry arranged for new apartments to be built for her at Whitehall. And at Christmas 1542, Mary made a grand procession across London to Hampton Court for the holidays, and Henry and all his gentlemen rode out to meet her. So from the time of Mary's capitulation in, to Henry's demands in 1536, marriage negotiations had once again been a constant in her life. She was put forward for her cousin, Don Lewis of Portugal, for William, Duke of Cleves, who was Anne of Cleves' brother, uh, for Philip of Bavaria, who visited her on several occasions, was even seen to kiss her, possibly the one shade of romance in Mary's youth. And she was also suggested as a bride for the Voivod of Transylvania, which is a, might have been an interesting result. But negotiations founded on Mary's status. Henry was adamant that she was illegitimate, and although he was prepared to agree that she would inherit the throne after Edward, if Edward had no children, it would have to be after any other legitimate children born to, born to Henry, including daughters. But since practically everyone in Europe, even the Lutherans, believed Mary to be legitimate, they wanted her to rank above any subsequent daughters of Henry's. But on this point, Henry would not be moved. He would give Mary a dowry worthy of his daughter, acknowledge her as a potential successor, but only on his own terms. And this is one of the best documented periods of Mary's youth. Her privy purse expenses are still extant and they give a fascinating insight into her daily life. She was actually uh, quite extravagant. She bought huge quantities of expensive clothes, uh, a taste she definitely shared with Henry, and he, he sent her uh, beautiful fabrics, cloth of gold and velvet, and uh, he sent her jewellery. Um, and she, she clearly loved jewels. On, on one occasion, she purchased 100 pearls at a price of 40 shillings and fourpence each. Which was which totaled two hundred and sixty-seven pounds at a time when a gentleman's family might live on twenty pounds a year. I mean, this just enormous spending. Uh, she also spent an awful, awful lot of money on presents. And interesting, she was on uh, very good terms with people whose uh, men and women whose religious opinions certainly later differed from hers, and who were in different factions of the court. And I, it's apparent that Mary attempted to be above any kind of faction and to keep on keep on good terms with everybody. Uh, she she gave all the presents. She gave Elizabeth a silver box uh, uh, embroidered with thread, and her half brother Edward got a coat with tinsel sleeves one year. In July 1543, Henry married Mary's friend Catherine Parr, who uh, was the widowed Lady Latimer. Uh, Mary was probably pleased by this. Not only because Catherine was her friend, but also because Catherine, not having had any children by two previous husbands, seemed pretty unlikely to have a child now who would potentially displace Mary. And it's very interesting to speculate how Mary would have reacted to the birth of, a, of another daughter. Uh, we can only wonder what she would have thought about it and whether she would have still seen her own claim as superior. But for the remainder of Henry's life, uh, Mary lived at the court, sharing intellectual interests with Catherine, musical interests with her father, and uh, she even continued uh, with studying and used her considerable Latin skills to translate Erasmus's paraphrases of the New Testament for a book of, that Catherine sponsored. 
So Henry and Mary, they remained on good terms. Her place in the succession was assured by the Act of Succession of 1544, which confirmed what Henry had maintained since 1537, that she would inherit after Edward and any legitimate daughters. Uh, Henry and Mary, they, they continued to enjoy each other's company. They hunted and rode together. And towards the end of his life, Henry bought Mary a new horse, for which he paid five pounds. And he also ordered a consignment of arrows for archery and uh, specified some particular ones to be given, given to her. Uh, Mary was obviously a keen archer. She, she bought bows and arrows and quivers uh, from time to time. But uh, in late 1546, Henry's health deteriorated and he shut himself away from all his family. Here we are. Uh, but I can tell you now, but I hope that this introduction has given you the idea that the relationship between Henry and Mary was a good deal more nuanced than is sometimes supposed. Mm. So I love that. I, I love that story about um, him having this fatherly pride and saying that she never cried and, and everything like that. That's so Yes, <laughs> pretty unlikely. I think most two-year-olds cry from time to time, but uh, <laughs> yes, maybe she was so spoiled she didn't need to. <laughs> right, perhaps. She never needed to cry because she just got everything. Um, so <laughs> people assume that that Mary and Thomas Cromwell must have been enemies. What can you tell us about their relationship? Yes, I, it's, it's difficult to tell because again, there's sort of a personal and a political element to it, but Cromwell, he definitely seems to have favored uh, an alliance between England and the empire. So he, he promoted that rather than an alliance with France. And in 1536, after the death of Anne, it was Cromwell to whom Mary wrote, and he went to considerable trouble to organise the reconciliation. Uh, he kept trying to persuade Mary to make a full submission, and she would write back to him saying, no, she couldn't go that far. And he would then try to persuade her again, and eventually he sent her a very stern letter saying that she was the most obstinate woman ever born, and he wanted nothing more to do with her, and to please stop writing to him unless she was going to conform. So once Mary had given in, uh, she was she wrote to thank Cromwell, she thanked him. He, he gave her two horses on different occasions. Uh, one year she drew him as, as I'm in the in the February, um, you know, the, the regular Valentine's Day uh, ceremonies. And she wrote to him, she called him her, uh, uh, she, she described it as a perfect friendship. And uh, she thanked him for all his efforts on her behalf. And, you know, they exchanged gifts and presents. So she could have hated him in her heart because he had destroyed the monasteries. And we know from later events that Mary, although she was not, doesn't seem to have been terribly interested in relics and that sort of thing, she, she definitely uh, believed in the monastic ideal. But there's no sign of her bearing a grudge against Cromwell at all. She was a goddaughter to his grandson, a godmother to his grandson. Um, so yes, again, a much more nuanced relationship than, than we might suppose. Mm. And why did she take so long to accept the anomaly of her parents' marriage? Why was she being so stubborn? I think it was because she had, as I said before, really internalized the idea that she was the king's heir. Mm. Whilst, whilst Mary refused to accept anybody else uh, as, as Henry's heir, if she married anybody else, uh, then there would be a legitimate claim for her and her husband to claim the throne. And all, since all the foreign rulers had very little interest in 
Elizabeth as a potential heir or a potential wife for their sons. They wanted Mary. As long as she continued to persist, it was open to her after Henry's death to mount a challenge to the throne. That, and nobody could say she, was, she had broken her oath. So as long as she continued to maintain it, uh, she couldn't, nobody could accuse her of changing her mind, of giving in, of uh, swearing an oath and then breaking it. And it would give legitimacy to, to her claims. Whereas uh, Henry and Anne wanted her to accept Elizabeth as Henry's heir. And she would then, you know, in the event of Henry's death, it would have been easier for Anne or whoever was, was left uh, to, to promote Elizabeth above Mary if she had once accepted an inferior position. Mm. Mm. So I think, I think that was, I think that was her motivation. I mean, clearly there was a motivation on, you know, respect for her mother and, uh, and a desire to maintain the, the supremacy of, uh, of the Catholic, or of, of the Pope in, in England. But I think it was, there was a strong political dimension to her decision. Mm. And when she did return to court, what was life like for her? What did she do? Well, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, she certainly, she actually seems to have had a, a whale of a time, most of the time. She, uh, she took part in um, you know, court ceremonies. She had beautiful clothes. She went hunting. She danced. She had friends. She had, she went to, she went to parties. She went to dinner parties. She um, uh, had lots and lots of godchildren. Uh, quite surprisingly, some of her godchildren, one of her godchildren was the, uh, the child of uh, uh, John Dudley, late Duke of Northumberland, who tried to bar her from the throne. Um, but always in the background, there was a there, there was fear and there was a threat. Um, I talk about uh, a period in the in the late 1530s when Mary was clearly either deceiving Henry or deceiving her cousin Charles because she was saying one thing to one of them and something else to the other of them and. It's quite difficult to unpick whether she was um, deliberately planting information on the uh, the imperial ambassador, or whether she was effectively telling state secrets to him. So it, it's quite interesting to she, she she got involved in political chicanery without a doubt. Mm. Um, yeah, so she she seems to have been a woman who had a, had a lot of friends. Uh, her biggest her biggest entertainment was gambling. She was a very heavy gambler. Yes, I know it's, a, it's a, hard, a hard thing to square with perceptions of Mary, but actually, if you look at her life, she was a gambler. She gambled with her cards. She gambled quite heavily for, on dice and bowls, and particularly cards seem to have been her thing. But also, she gambled throughout those years when she stood up to Henry, but he wouldn't push it too far. And most of all, she gambled in 1553 when she... Uh, claimed the throne, so she she had a gambler's nature. Um, she she had uh, she she enjoyed the antics of her fool. Uh, she was she's very charitable. She gave a lot of money, particularly to prisons and to prisoners in a time when, if you were in prison, you had to you had to pay for your own keep. Uh, and she gave money to uh, the, the monasteries until they were closed down, and then after that to almshouses and and poor houses, and quite often handed out. You know, small sums of cash to people as, as as she rode past. She seems particularly to have given money to Welsh people, which perhaps was her way of maintaining, in her own mind, her position of Princess of Wales. 
and she would she was given from time to time leaks uh, even after she had uh, been officially demoted the the yeoman of the king's guard gave her a leak on st david's day which uh, the leak being the symbol of wales um, but yeah so so mixed she, she, there was always the threat in the background and the events of 1539 uh, to 41 the exeter conspiracy which saw the death of a number of her her friends um, must have been particularly difficult, and of course the the execution of her her governess uh, Margaret Poole, Countess of Salisbury. Mm. Um, but I I suppose like many children, you know, she loved her father even though he had made her life difficult. And it's you know any child who, who most children who suffer at the hands of a parent don't blame the parent unless they absolutely have to. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a mixed picture, nuanced, I think. Mm -hmm. That should be the subtitle, Lessons in Nuance. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what was her relationship like with her stepmothers? Uh, well, clearly her relationship with Anne Boleyn was, was fraught. And I mean, she must have known Anne Boleyn since uh, 1526, I, I think. that the first time they're, they're recorded as, uh, as being in the same room is when they both took part in a, in a pageant together. So, uh, and then during the late 1520s, whilst Henry was still um, adamant that his interest in Anne Boleyn was, was different from his desire to have his marriage annulled, um, it's probable that Mary, you know, accepted that. It was a, a more palatable thing to believe than that her, her father just preferred a, a, another woman to her mother. And she probably just thought of Anne as, as the king's mistress, uh, which is not something that was going to endear her to Anne. And it's obvious from the from 1530 or so onwards that Anne saw Mary as her real enemy, not not Catherine, because Henry's continuing affection for Mary, for Mary threatened Anne, and she she was very keen to to keep them apart. Uh, Jane Seymour, she was uh, Mary was very attached to. Uh, when Jane died, she she was chief mourner, but she was so so distraught to begin with that um, somebody else had to take her her duties on because she was she was too upset. Anne of Cleves, um, there's not a lot of evidence about it, but such as there is suggests that they got on well. Uh, and later, Anne of Cleves rode in Mary's coronation procession, uh, and I think Mary paid for her funeral as well. Uh, Catherine Howard, after the the rather difficult beginning. Uh, it, it definitely improved and Catherine was happy for Mary to come back and live at court. Uh, and as I mentioned before, she and Catherine Parr were, were close friends. And there's a very nice um, inscription in, uh, uh, Hen Hen in, in Catherine's prayer book, which, which Henry made actually, but which was probably to Mary. It's possible it was to Elizabeth, but it was probably to Mary, uh, referring to her as his own good daughter and asking her to pray for him. So you can have a vision of uh, Henry with Catherine and Mary actually um, signing each other's prayer books as, as was a common practice in those days. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, so on the whole, good other than with Anne Boleyn. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, you certainly paint a different picture of her than uh, you know, what's commonly kind of thought of when, when people think about her. What do you think, other than nuance, what do you think are the main ways that we should remember her? Well, 
I'm obviously talking in this book about Mary's youth. I don't go beyond the, um, the death of Henry VIII, 1547. I, there's, there's obviously the later volumes to come, which will talk about uh, you know, how the rest of Mary's life. And it may be that I discover new and different things then. Um, I think the most, the most interesting thing I think I've taken away from this is that Mary was much more political than I thought. I had a vision of her as, um, yeah, I wouldn't go with the, the, the naive view of some of the um, sort of male 20th century historians, but I, I had a vision of her as quite a straightforward person and you know, what you saw was what you got. But it's very apparent from um, the records of the 1530s and early 1540s that she was just as capable of political intrigue as anybody else. And I think what's interesting and something I might want to explore in, in, a, in a later book is how she maintained her relationships at court with the different factions. So uh, Edward Seymour, Queen Jane's brother, was a very close friend, although later as Duke of Somerset, you know, they, they, they had religious differences. And as I mentioned before, uh, the Dudleys were, were friends. She was, she was godson, uh, godmother to their children, or one of their children. And another interesting friendship was with uh, Catherine Willoughby, who was Duchess of Suffolk. Uh, Catherine later became a very um, strong um, radical Protestant. And actually she went into exile in Mary's own reign. But during, during the 30s and 40s, they, they gambled together, they played cards together. Uh, Catherine lent her horses. So it would, it would suggest that Mary at a personal level had had the gift of friendship. There are a lot of people she, she spent time with. Uh, so I think that's, yes, and, and that's something I'd like to research further, how she, how she developed these different relationships with different factions in the court. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, kind of wrapping up, I, I see you've got some stuff behind you. What, what is that? I have, yes. Now, as you, as you mentioned, as you mentioned in the beginning, um, I'm, I'm the co-editor and the founder of um, Tudor Times. Mm -hmm. And Tudor Times, as well as being a website which is devoted to uh, Tudor and Stuart history, we also have a shop which we opened fairly recently. And we've got some very interesting, I think, Tudor products, which um, I have a few of here. Now, I was going to hold this up as my coffee cup that I've been drinking out of. So we've got, we've got a range of uh, quotes. And I particularly like this one, your library is your paradise, which is from Erasmus. And we've got uh, postcards. It's another good one from Thomas More, loveth me, loveth my hound. So for the dog lover in your life. Uh, our most popular item is uh, in fact, the mug of uh, Elizabeth I's quote here, I am no morning woman, which a lot of people, um, agree with although actually Mary was a morning woman she, she was she was an early riser and liked to like to get up early hmm. uh, we've got some greeting cards uh, postcards and uh, two uh, we've also got some tote bags mugs this is in, in um, various different different patterns whoops yeah. <laughs> this one, sorry. Uh, this one is our Neville pattern. So we've got a, a series of black and white patterns and a series of uh, coloured patterns. Uh, the coloured patterns are based on Tudor knot gardens, and the black and white are based on 
uh, black and white art architecture patterns. And finally, we've got some calendars. Um, this is a particular favourite. This is the, the Women's uh, Renaissance calendar. And this is a quote from Katarina Sforza. Fortune helps the intrepid and abandons the cowards. <laughs> and uh, one I particularly like here, no more tears now, I will think upon revenge, Mary. which is a quote from uh, Mary Queen of Scots. Perfect. So these are all available from shop.tudertimes.co.uk. Wonderful. Great. So um, we can also get your book on Amazon. Yes, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's now available uh, in hardback. I believe the Kindle will be available uh, within the next uh, week or two. But it's also available on shop.tudor times. And if you buy it from the shop during the pre-order period, uh, you'll get a gift of a set of um, five quite complex family trees, which were just too difficult to get into a book, which show how Mary was not just at the centre of uh, the English royal family, but also the European royal families, and also how she interrelated with some of the English nobility. Mm. Uh, she was particularly close to members of the Grey family, which uh, obviously when you consider the events of 1553, it is perhaps surprising that she had, she had quite a lot of close friends amongst, amongst the Grey family. Hmm. So if you purchase from uh, shop.tudertimes.co.uk, you'll get the family trees. Otherwise, of course, Amazon is it's always, always a good place to look for a book. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to, to speak with us on this inaugural Tudor Summit. It's been great. I love seeing this other picture of, of Mary emerging as well. So thank you for your research and thank you for, for sharing it with us. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.